In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We start each conference with a prayer to the Holy Spirit, and I think if you pay attention to that, you'll see that that is a retreat in itself. Just as when our Lord founded the church and gave us his greatest gift at Pentecost, so the Holy Spirit walks among us today. Those of you who have met the Charismatics or are Charismatic will understand the great power that the Holy Spirit is exercising now. And when we go on thinking about the history of our church here in America, it's worth recalling that we are asking the Holy Spirit to renew the face of the earth. And he did it before, and he can do it again. And that's why when we ask him to kindle in us the fire of thy love, we really are calling on the same Lord who started the church on the first Pentecost. It's very hard for us to realize that it's the same problem and the same help and the same human beings now as then. So we have the same chance of being heroic. Now, I mentioned Sir Thomas More at the start today, and I've often thought, if you think of the history of the church, it really always ought to be compared to a garden. Our Lord himself, in the parables, always referred to things growing when he talked about the church. And for us ourselves, we have that old book, The Garden of the Soul. And I think there are saints for each season of the garden, so that you get saints who are spring saints, and you get saints who are summer saints, and then you get saints who are autumn and even winter saints. You get those saints who spread the gospel, like Father White, who came here, went out and really tried to start something new. Then you get men like St. Francis de Sales, who was a great saint at the time when the church was well established, and though there were troubles, there weren't the kind of upsets and instability which existed in other times. And then there were saints who were holy when everything was going wrong. And, of course, among them, perhaps the most outstanding, is St. Thomas More, who died practically alone, the whole country having thrown off the faith. But the seasons, like in a garden, changed very quickly. And almost the moment poor Thomas More died all alone and disgraced, standing for what the church stood for, almost immediately there was an enormous burst of the Spirit and a second spring. More probably knew St. Ignatius. Ignatius came to London once when he was a student from Paris to collect arms. And, of course, Ignatius, being a Spaniard, had much to do with the unhappy Queen Catherine of Aragon. And as More was on Catherine of Aragon's side, it seems quite likely, and More was Chancellor at the time, uh, that they actually met. But when More died in disgrace and the whole Catholic Church in England collapsed, there were already 76 people in Rome who would be later canonized. Not only Ignatius and Xavier and the Jesuit saints, but also some, uh, people like St. Charles Borromeo and the founders of the Ursuline nuns, St. Philip Neri. There were an incredible number of ordinary men and women alive through whom the Holy Ghost would blow in order to revive the church. And that's going to happen again today. The whole history of the church is of this, these seasons and the great thing is, whatever season you're born in, that you respond. 
So therefore, what is striking, when the whole church in England collapsed, then all of a sudden, one or two people fled from England to the continent, a few Carthusians, uh, one or two Benedictines, some of the sisters, and a lot of lay people. And the lay people who fled, a lot of them entered the Jesuit order, which was just starting then. St. Ignatius never saw England really Catholic, of just that one visit. And so therefore, all of a sudden, on the continent, there began to grow up a most remarkable body of devout and intense people. Now, it was the policy of Queen Elizabeth, when she came to the throne, not to persecute Catholics at all. She wanted the church to die. There were no Catholic schools, mass wasn't said, and for 20 years there were no priests, or all the priests had become Episcopalians, or most of them. And therefore, if it had gone on like that, the church in England would have disappeared as it disappeared in Sweden, where there was once a flourishing church but with no vocations and no attempt to allow the Catholics to flourish. Gradually the old men would die and then there would be nothing left. And that went on for 20 years, and I don't think Queen Elizabeth deserves to be blamed for persecuting the church. She didn't want to. She was like exactly like the Kremlin today, that if you just leave a thing alone and cut off all books and all education, gradually um, a whole generation dies, and then th that church is finished. Now, that that didn't happen was due first to one extraordinary man, Cardinal Allen, who will probably never be canonized because... He, they can say that he partly took part in politics. But he was exactly the same type of man as the great Polish resistance leaders or French resistance leaders under Hitler. He was an amazing man, a Lancashireman. He escaped to the continent, and he built a seminary to make sure that priests did go back to England, the famous uh, College of Douai, from which the Douai translation came. And there gathered a whole lot of exiles, wonderful men they were, and then they began to get young men coming from England to be trained as priests. The average age of the young seminarians who eventually died in England, I think, was something like 25. They're all young men, or most of them. So therefore, you suddenly got this thing starting, and in about 20 years, there were no priests in England except the old ones who were just dying slowly and the whole church disappearing and mass gone. And then you got Alan sending his young men back. And, of course, the first one who landed it was in my own county of Cornwall, St. Cuthbert, Maine, now. He was the first seminarian priest to be caught and hanged. He was only in his early 30s. But I think Queen Elizabeth never wanted to do this. It was rather like happens in all these resistance movements. The other side doesn't really want to provoke hostility, but they wanted the church to die. But then there came this startling thing that Cardinal Allen persuaded the Jesuits to send two men to help the secular priests in their work. The, the general of the Jesuits didn't want it at all. He was very extended. The order was quite new. They were sending men to India and to Japan, and, to, and they really didn't want uh, to get involved in England. But a very good point was raised that, that uh, after all, they had taught these young men, some of them, and they, in Rome, uh, were working in the seminary, and therefore, in a douay, and therefore they ought to bear the same trial as their students. And then also, if they didn't go there, then when England became Catholic again, as they always thought it would immediately, that then uh, they would be out of it. So eventually the general, with a very wise man, he gave way, and then he sent these two extraordinary priests to England, one blessed at St. Edmund Campion now, and the other Father Parsons. 
the Protestants called it the Jesuit invasion, but it was only an invasion of three people, two priests and one brother, most remarkable people. Now, the odd thing is that uh, Edmund Campion himself didn't want to go back. Both, both Campion and Parsons had been Episcopalians. In, in childhood, they had both accepted the Church of England. Indeed, Campion became a deacon in the Church of England. He was a self-made man. His father was, uh, was a printer. He had a brother and a soldier. And young Campion uh, won all his way by scholarships. He got a scholarship to a very famous high school that still exists, and then he got a scholarship to Oxford, and then he became a very distinguished professor at Oxford. And he was young and very good-looking and very popular, but he took, he took orders in the Episcopalian Church. He was at St. John's College, Oxford, and the very next college down the road, Balliol, was Robert Parsons. He was the bursar there. They both of them, after Henry VIII's death, accepted the new establishment. But Campion had such scruples and was so unhappy about this that he then fled overseas and wanted to stay away, and he became a Jesuit, and went and taught in Prague. He was teaching boys there and was extremely happy. Nothing he had less in mind than to go back to his own country. But then when the general decided with Cardinal Allen that the Jesuits should go, Campion, they just wrote to Campion and told him under obedience, and he obeyed, though he knew it, he, would, he would be killed. He had no doubts about it that when he landed in England, he would certainly be caught one day and he'd certainly be uh, hanged. He was, they were the kind of resistance people who were so brave in Holland and Belgium and France during the Second War. So Campion and Parsons uh, went to England. They didn't know what to find. They were told to keep right out of politics, but to try and encourage the poor Catholics who hadn't seen a priest or very rarely seen a priest in 20 years. And as you know, they came up to the Channel Coast and they dressed in disguise. Parsons was an absolute genius, and he's the most hated Jesuit, I should think, in the world. He, uh, he lived very long and he was a brilliant man. Uh, Pars uh, Parsons was in charge of the show, and Parsons dressed up as an officer coming home on leave from the Netherlands. And he got past the spies who knew they were coming and was looking out for them. Parsons not only got by, but he persuaded one of the police to lend him a horse. He was that sort of man, and he arrived in London, and then he had, when he got to London, he didn't know quite where to go, so he went to one of the jails and had breakfast with all the Catholic prisoners lying in, inside. Campion was much more hesitant. He was in disguise, but thought it was stupid. He'd rather just be caught outright. But he put on a disguise of kind, and he said he was a jeweller, and he survived just one year in England. And what was strange was, when the two Jesuits turned up in England, the secular clergy and the other priests who were there, the old men, told them to go home again. They didn't want to have a rumpus. They didn't want to have the ch Queen Elizabeth persecuting the church and killing the priests. And so, therefore, the old men weren't at all pleased. But Campion and Parsons had to say, well, we were sent by the Pope, and with them were all these wonderful young seminarians who suffered the same lot. And so you got the old church dying, or very, and rather timid, and not wanting a trouble of any kind. And then you got Allen and Campion and Parsons and Sherwood and Southall and Brandt, all young men who risked their lives in order to keep the faith going. Very much as I know there are people today, as priests in, not only in Poland, uh, but I'm told in Russia and even in, in China, some priests have survived. Without them, the church dies. So that's why vocations are such a vital matter today. Well, Campion survived a year. He wrote his famous book, The Ten Reasons Why He Had Given Up the Episcopalian Church and Become Catholic. It wasn't a very popular book, and he had a printing press 
in the park at Stoner, and they put all his books out for the uh, um, graduation day at Oxford. To the horror of all the students and Protestant bishops, they suddenly found this book on every seat when all the students came in to get their degrees. Campion only lasted a year. He knew he would be caught, and he was caught. Parsons lasted a year too, but then he escaped. And then he went overseas, and he was the sort of brain behind the whole survival of the church. He opened the seminaries in two in Spain. He opened St. Omer's in the north of France, where John Carroll went to school. So really he was the founder of where all these young men were able to be priests, and then he supplied them with chalices and wine, and he had friends, and he sneaked them into England, very much like a resistance leader. Parsons will never be canonized either, but I often feel he was the... He, he lived till 1610, and he, as an old, old man when he was dying, he put the rope that had tied Campion to the hurdle round his neck. But they were wonderful men, and there were a whole string of them came, one after the other. First there was only one Jesuit. When Campion was caught, then there was only one Jesuit in England, Father Jasper Hayward, St. Thomas More's great-nephew. Then again, it, then Father Weston came, then Father Gerard came, Father Suttle, and they gradually, with hiding holes, etc., they built up this extraordinary thing, and the society in England jumped from about five in 1590 to nearly 300. And all through the persecution days, and for 200 years, there were at least 20 vocations from Maryland and from England. 20 people became a Jesuit every year. So therefore, now this is where really where your Maryland history begins, because the great thing that Parsons and Campion did in their year in England was to inspire a whole lot of young laymen. Wonderful men. One man was almost a millionaire, Gilbert, and who uh, died very suddenly of TB. He gave all his money. He provided the horses and the hiding holes and the houses where the priests could lodge. And then there were a whole string of others. And these were the men, really, who eventually rallied round uh, when the Maryland colony was suggested. And among the people who were just beginning their lives when Campion was there was Father White and Lord uh, Baltimore. They were both born about the same year. Andrew White was one year old when Campion came to London, and as a baby he was there when Campion was hanged um, at Marble Arch. He didn't know that, I can tell you. Lord Baltimore was about the same time, and Baltimore was a Protestant. He was an Episcopalian, and Baltimore, you call him Colbert, and we call him Calvert, he's one, I think, again, like Thomas More, one of the most striking characters in, in church history. He's an extraordinary man. He went into the civil service, and he became a secretary of state when Queen Elizabeth was queen, and then with James I. He was a man rather like, um, I wouldn't say Kissinger, but one of these other rather lower, uh, but, but a very high up man, a secretary to the, to the king's or queen's cabinet, and a man of enormous influence, and a Protestant. And then the odd thing is that just at the time after the gunpowder plot, when Catholics were being persecuted and put to death and all sorts of Puritans were spreading stories about it, Calvert became a Catholic. It's a most amazing conversion. And so much was he respected and admired uh, by the court and by everybody that though he was a Catholic, nobody ever persecuted him. He managed to go on as a politician and he managed to quite openly say he was a Catholic and he wasn't touched because King James and all the other people, Lord Salisbury, admired him so much. It's very interesting that a Protestant bishop wrote this about, uh, about uh, Calvert, Colbert, which is very impressive. 
Speaking of the Spanish negotiations in view of a royal match, the Bishop of Gloucester writes, The third man who was thought to gain by the Spanish marriage was Secretary Calvert. And as he was the only secretary employed in the Spanish match, so undoubtedly he did what good office he could therein for religion's sake, being infinitely addicted to the Roman Catholic faith, having been converted thereunto by Count Gondomar, the Spanish ambassador, and Count Arundel, whose daughter, Secretary Calvert's son, married. And as it was said, the secretary did usually catechize his own children so to ground them in his own religion. And in his best room, this is when priests were being hanged for saying mass, and in his best room, having an altar set up with chalice, candlesticks, and all other ornaments, he brought all strangers thither, never concealing anything, as if his whole joy and comfort had been to make an open profession of his religion. Now, the, uh, and he was accused of, of having made money and, and a sort of Watergate, and when he denied it and said he'd only made ten pounds out of the whole negotiation, everybody believed him. He was quite the most honorable person uh, that you'll meet in uh, that time of history. So there was Calvert, or Colvert, having just become a Catholic, and of course it was his son who married Anne Arundel, as you call her, and after whom um, that area of Annapolis is called. Now, White was a baby in London, and his poor mother and father were very devout Catholics. And they, like all other Catholics in those days, they worried how their child could ever be educated in the faith. There was no Catholic school allowed. And so when Andrew White was about 16, uh, he had to leave home, like they all did in those days, and he had to say goodbye to his mother and father and go off to Spain, where Father Parsons had opened these two seminaries. And Andrew White uh, knew Spanish fluently by the end. He spent four years in Spain uh, learning uh, theology. And then he came back and was a hunted priest in England, living in hiding holes and having to carry all his vestments secretly and saying mass in little corners, uh, as they all did. I've been in those holes. I get, did a television show in London, England, and I got into a priest hiding hole still there, built by that remarkable Jesuit brother who's now canonized. It was wonderful. There was one false room, then another false room, then there were the two walls, had hinges on them. You could go down the fireplace into that room or that room. They still remain. It really is an extraordinary thing how the life they, they led, and which later they led over here. So therefore, Andrew White did a, quite a long time risking his life as a priest, and then when the gunpowder plot came off and all the priests and Catholics were rounded up, and that was a phony plot if ever there was one, just like the firing of the Reichstag by Hitler, uh, Andrew White was exiled with about 40 other priests. He was told to get out of England, and if he came back, he'd be hanged. Well, he did come back eventually, but he uh, first went off and became a Jesuit, and he was in the noviceship. He was the second novice to enter our province, and the one just behind him was Thomas More's uh, another grandnephew, Henry More, and ahead of him was a man who was a martyr, uh, Thomas Garnet. So these men went to Louvain and became Jesuits, and then Father White, as a young Jesuit, was, they, they thought he was very clever, and he was made a scripture professor. And he taught scripture for ever so long, and he's, he's an extraordinary man. If you look at his handwriting, he's got the neatest writing you ever saw. Terribly neat. He must have been a very, very uh, neat person. And the second thing you notice about him, he was very affectionate, but the third thing, he was a nuisance in the seminary because he was a kind of, um, he was almost like a, a John Birch Society man. He couldn't stand any change. 
And so he insisted on every student studying exactly what St. Thomas said with no variation at all. And when other professors began to read other philosophers, even St. Robert Bellamin, um, White complained. He became a rigorist that everybody, he objected to anybody who departed from St. Thomas in any way at all. And there are lots of letters between himself and other professors and the general, some of them saying that this man White is impossible. So eventually the general tried to pacify him and told him, uh, you know, wrote very courteous letters to him, but eventually they said, well, he can't stay in the seminary, he's causing too much trouble, he's so very conservative. So they sent him back to England and he worked in hiding again in Devonshire and in Suffolk, and there he met George Calvert, Colbert. When they met is not clear, but they were friends for quite a number of years before Maryland was first mentioned. Colbert, having become a Catholic and extraordinary in the middle of a political world and with everybody anti-Catholic, and he untouched, he decided uh, that he wanted to go and form these colonies. He, he first, he had a complete mess up in New, what we call Newfoundland, I think you call it the same, or Newfoundland. So uh, poor old um, uh, Colbert took his boats and sailed up there, and he had a disaster because when he got to Newfoundland the first time, it was summer. And the sun was out and cherry blossoms. And he, in fact, they called all the bays the most cherry things, like sun-kissed and a happy valley and all this. But when they got, went back next time, it was the middle of winter. And you know what Canada's like in the winter. And they found themselves frozen stiff and all dying. And so they packed up and, and left Canada for good. But they did, he took two priests with him up there, and they had mass up there. And he was the very first man to be really tolerant. Indeed, there's an example right up there in Canada where he had one building and he allowed the Episcopalians to use one half and the priests to use the other half and they had service at the same time. Having been a devout Protestant himself, although he became a Catholic and loved it, he nevertheless remained with the most extraordinary fairness uh, to people who didn't have the same faith as himself. Well, eventually, as you know, he came back. And he came to Virginia just across the water here, but there the Church of England was in the ascendancy and there was hatred enormous hatred of a man who was a Catholic and also they feared that Lord Baltimore would one day come and settle there and take away their land so he had a very stormy reception just across the Potomac so he went back to England and then he got leave from King Charles I to start a colony in Maryland and what's so interesting is the only colony where he himself and Father White they wrote the uh, sort of program for the colony this little boy, baby, who'd been a baby when Campion was there, and uh, Lord uh, Baltimore himself. He was made Lord Baltimore because when he resigned from the government, the king didn't want people to think he had been dismissed for being so good a Catholic. So James I gave him a title in Ireland just to show that he still had royal approval. Well, when they got together, and you can read, they worked it all out, the great thing was that Maryland was to be the only state which would have tolerance. Later, Pennsylvania under Penn would would go even further. But whereas the Boston people up there and Connecticut and Virginia were all terribly bitter and all just like Belfast today, in their all pushing their own show, these two great men drew up a complete freedom of religion. And when they started to pick the people for their journey and get the boats together, they made very clear that there must be Catholics and Protestants on, among the first colonists. And indeed they picked uh, very carefully that there'd be nobody who made any trouble. And then uh, they wrote, uh, and, and Colbert wrote himself, and made it very clear that on the voyage they were to be very careful to preserve the peace and unity throughout their voyage to Maryland. 
And he, and he, he underlined that the Catholics must pray quietly and not in any way offend the Protestants, that even on board ship, if they had mass, that whatever they did, they must take great care not to have any ill will or row about religion. So the whole expedition was a most remarkable one, and uh, it was these men who had helped Campion who, who put up the money. And eventually these two Jesuits uh, were invited to go on the trip, and the general gave leave. They, I think they were rather glad to see the end of Father White, because he was caused so much trouble in the seminary, but they all admitted he was a learned man and a very fine man. So they set out, as you know, from London in 1633, and they came round the Thames and they came down to the British Channel just where D-Day uh, was, where your men landed. They stopped at the Isle of Wight and the two priests got onto the boat in disguise. They, in England they couldn't be known to be priests. And indeed some rumour seems to have got around that there were priests on board and therefore they had some trouble as they came down the channel. They stopped near Hearst Castle and there um, people tried to stop them and the sailors talked as though they wouldn't let the boat go on. Then they went on down the channel and on the feast, 24th of November, 1633, uh, they came into this terrible storm. Father White, Father White wrote a marvellous account of the whole thing, which is a classic. So when this storm came, there were two boats. There was one, the little pinnace called the, uh, the Dove, and there was the big new boat, the Ark. Now the Ark went on. The captain decided that though the storm was so great, uh, he felt that he would risk it and get to go across to Chesapeake without stopping. But the little pinnace, which was very small, uh, that they all thought was gone. Father White says that it was so rough and the sea was so great uh, that they thought the pinnace had drowned, and they prayed for all the poor chaps on board. But actually it hadn't gone down. It had come into where I live now, the Isles of Scilly, right out uh, where the Atlantic begins. And they stayed there two days, and then they got a tow from a battleship, the Dragon. And so the little pinnace was pulled across the Atlantic and got there just about the same time as the big boat. So when the chaps on the ark were just getting out and having a coke uh, after their journey, <laughs> they suddenly looked up and saw the little boat coming into the harbour they, where they thought they'd already said several rosaries for those who were drowned. Well, th then, of course, they landed here, as you know, and, of course, um, Maryland is marvellous, although you don't have much to do with it now, but you're the only state that still celebrates the Annunciation of Our Lady, March the 25th, as a state holiday because that was the day when these great men landed in St. Clement's Isle. I suppose only post office workers will keep a holiday today. Uh, but nevertheless, on Wednesday next, whatever it is, uh, that is a holiday for you still to commemorate the arrival of these lovely people here in Chesapeake Bay. They tried to go to Virginia first and had a, a rather unpleasant welcome. In fact, when I stand and look out over the river, it was just this very place that they, the Episcopalians and the Catholics had a real battle for about 60 years because Virginia was so very Episcopalian, and Lord Calvert uh, 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 so very, very Catholic. Actually, the first Lord Calvert, that heroic man, he didn't, never came, he died. Just when the thing was going to start out, and when he prepared it all, he died at the age of 53. He had about 10 or 11 children. He married twice, and his wife and half, many of his children were drowned at sea, and he never got over it. Although he was most resigned and his prayers about it are very touching, it broke his heart, and so eventually, at only 53, he died, and his son uh, succeeded him, the one who had married uh, Anne Arundel. And there again you get a marvellous family, the best family in England. All the others apostatized, like the Duke of Norfolk, but one family never did, and they were the, what you call the Arundels of Warder. The last of them was the 14th 
Baron, was a boy with me at school. And he died. He wanted to be a priest, but he was the last man of the long family, and he would have married, I think, but the war came, and he went and fought there and was caught and was a prisoner of war and died in a prison camp. And he wrote a marvellous letter on his death uh, to all his retainers at Warder, um, saying that the faith had been kept there for since the persecution day. They never had a lapsed person. No, no Arundel ever gave up the faith, and he said to them that God would look after them if they were faithful. He was a marvellous man. That family is the only one, really, that carried the faith right through the persecution and are still Catholic uh, today. But John Arundel died. Well, it was, one, it was Anne Arundel, a very devout person, who married the second Lord Baltimore. So when they came here, that's why they have that district called after the, the warders, which is very moving. So now we come to their arrival, and of course, you know it well. What is a laugh? Father White was a real caution. He wrote an extraordinary letter describing the whole of the voyage. It's well worth reading Father Andrew White's narrative. He describes the storms and all that, and then he did a very clever thing. He wrote two copies of it. One, he put a whole lot of bits of psalms into it to impress the general of the Jesuits, and so he put in a whole lot of things saying, my, may thy holy will be done, and all that. And then he wrote another one, leaving those out, in order to raise money for the Maryland Company. So, so he wrote a prospectus for people who wanted to invest in Maryland, and he also made it into a very pious one uh, for the sake of the Jesuits in Rome. It's well worth reading, and of course he describes their arrival in the Caribbean and how they came up here, and eventually describes all the trees, and then he tells how the disaster came when the women on board started washing the linen here in Chesapeake Bay and dropped all his pants and things out into the sea. And he kind of said, it's not so, there's no supermarkets here, and I couldn't replace them. So he lost all his underwear somewhere here. You may see them floating down the river. <laughs> but I ought to read just that before we end, that his last description, which you probably now know very well, um, the description of how they arrived and, and landed and, and um, on the Feast of the Annunciation and how they carried a cross, which is, um, and the governor went first and all the Catholics and then the Protestants. The interpreter was a Protestant and he didn't take his hat off. But they all walked up under a tree and they planted the cross there and then they had the altar and Father White said Mass and then they all went to communion. And that really, so this state, which was to have religious tolerance in a remarkable way, all began with those two people. So I would like then to end on that particular note, where now we've, uh, because I think that when you come and look at the river here, you've got to think how very few people there were. Or down in southern Maryland, if you go around the tombstones, you'll see all the same names of Mudd and was one, Dr. Mudd lived here. And then you have the Diggses and you have all those people. They came over and they really started the church. They were wonderful men, very devout, and, and the good they did. One man who wrote a very interesting book on Southern Maryland and the old churches says that if you pick up the telephone directory of Southern Maryland, you'll still find all the names there today. They still go on. And they were most extraordinary men. So therefore, when we're looking at it there, we have that same picture that just as when Thomas More died, everything was finished as far as you can see. No saint died in such desolation except St. Paul, who tells Timothy that everybody had left him. Just about two, ten years after that, you've got this immense revival which, which led men like Campino. There are hundreds of them, seculars and Jesuits, who were hanged at Tyburn, and they did keep the faith going. And then out of that crop, you get those two strange men, Andrew White, who lived here and was at Chapel Point here near St. Thomas Manor, 
the very first man to land and to help the Indians, and poor Calvert, who never got here, but who together they worked out an idea of tolerance. So we might very much pray to them and for them, and ourselves feel why we're in this very spot, what a tremendous power the Holy Spirit has. And when you think they were only about a hundred when they started, and they lived in great poverty for two or three hundred years, and then from that very little start came really the whole American church. John Carroll was the first bishop, and he was bishop of a diocese that originally extended from Boston right down to Vincennes and Bardstown. Practically the half the east coast of America all got its faith uh, from uh, this first colony here. So I will end there for now. There's a gentleman who wanted to see me, and then to, uh, this afternoon we'll go on about the Indians and the way they lived and the, and the sort of prayers they said and the kind of Catholic church uh, that came from uh, these first colonists.